Hello and welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Boddy. And this week we've got something a little different for you. Last week Rick was out of the country. He was in Germany speaking. And what were you speaking on in Germany? Two things. I was speaking about my usual thing, ACS and troponins. But I was also talking about the challenge and value of research in emergency medicine. And I was talking at the German Emergency Medicine Society's annual conference called DGNA. Fantastic. So the St Emlyn's team's been out and about this year, really. We've been all over the world talking and sharing the love of the emergency medicine, and particularly emergency medicine research, teaching and education. So we've managed to record your talk. It was recorded live in Germany. So the sound quality is not perfect. It's not up to our usual St Emlyn's standards. But rather than re-record it to get the real feel for the day, we've got that live audio to play to you now and we've got the slides up on the website as well is that correct that's right yeah and i hope you enjoy it yeah there's some fantastic slides so let's get on with the podcast now let's get on with the lecture and hear what rick had to say it's a great pleasure uh, having rick Bodio over here from manchester and uh, he will just give us some some impression on research in emergency uh, medicine what you're doing what's your vision also we're just talking lots of vision and uh, so uh, Let's see what you tell us. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for attending. Um, good morning, everyone. Thanks for the introduction and thanks for being here so early. This morning, I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that we face doing research in emergency medicine. And by telling you a bit, little bit about my personal experiences, I'm going to talk about how and why we should all be doing everything we can to overcome those challenges. In my talk, I'm going to try and dispel three common myths. First of all, that in order to do research, you need lots of time, for example, as part of your job. You don't. Second, that you need a lot of funding. You don't. And third, that if you try and balance clinical work and clinical research, and juggle both balls, that actually you'll have a very poor work-life balance and, and no life. Actually, you can have a life. I'm going to start by making a sweeping generalisation. We don't do research in emergency medicine. Now, that might seem a little bit odd at the start of a great conference like this. You know, we're going to hear all about the groundbreaking research that's going on in emergency medicine. But in general, we don't do research. If you look at the research activity that goes on in emergency medicine and you compare that to all the specialties, we're right at the bottom of the league table. And there's a reason for that, I think, and it's because there are so many challenges to doing research in emergency medicine. We have a huge challenge, first of all, with regard to the people. People that do emergency medicine, like me, tend to like a certain thing. We like a fast pace, we like unpredictability, we like adrenaline, we like resuscitation. Those qualities are great, but they're kind of the opposite of what you need to do clinical research. And people want to do extra things apart from pure clinical medicine these days. They want portfolio careers. When I speak to my junior colleagues about what they'd like to do apart from pure clinical medicine, it's things like pre-hospital care, jumping out of helicopters, getting lots more adrenaline, joining the army, that kind of thing. 
You don't particularly want to do clinical research. We've got a real job to try and inspire the next generation to become clinical academics because those are the people that are going to drive our specialty and shape our future. We have another huge problem with, when it comes to the environment that we work in. We work in very overcrowded emergency departments. In Manchester, we have a resuscitation room that can hold four patients. But regularly, we have to accommodate six patients in that resuscitation room. Our corridors are lined with patients, both because they can't get into the department because there's no room and the paramedics have to stay with them, and they can't get out because when we want to admit them, there are no beds in the hospital. Those conditions mean that we're working under terrific pressure. And when we're facing those pressures day after day, we're fighting fires. Research is a luxury. We want to sort out the clinical care that we need to sort out. When we fight those fires, when we fought them, we can concentrate on research, but unfortunately they never go out. So there's a big challenge there. And lastly, it's a challenge when it comes to the patients that we treat. Our patients present in the midst of medical emergencies. Many of them don't have any capacity at all to consent to research. Even those who do have presented in the midst of a medical emergency. They've got their mind on other things. They want to know whether they're going to survive, whether their life is going to suddenly change. They don't want to be weighing up the pros and cons of participation in research. And even if they could, we need an instant decision because the research that we need to do is to time critical things, things that must be done at the front door. So we need a yes or no answer immediately. And all of those things mean that research is very challenging in emergency medicine. But there are also tremendous opportunities. In England and Wales, we see 21 million attendances at the emergency department every single year. That's accounting for a third of our population every year. There's no better patient base for research than that. We see more patients with chest pain in emergency medicine than the cardiologists. We see more children than our paediatricians, more injuries than our orthopedic surgeons. And our patients who present in the midst of those medical emergencies deserve high quality emergency care from us. They deserve the best. They deserve an evidence base to inform the treatment that we give them in the emergency situations. So we need to do better. Why should each of us as individuals engage with this process? Why should any individual think about doing research? Well, this is one of my favourite quotes. It comes from a famous author, I don't know if you know him. He's called Stephen Covey. He wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you haven't read it, you really should. It's brilliant. And the first habit of highly effective people that Stephen Covey talks about is to begin with the end in mind. So whether it's a project, a study, or even your whole life, Think about what it is that you're trying to achieve first, and then set about achieving it with that goal in mind. So just for a moment, I want you to reflect. I want you to think about what it is that you were trying to achieve when you went into medicine. 
why are you doing this job in the first place? Was it because you wanted money, success, social standing, prestige? All of those things might have been factors. But if you wanted to earn money, you wouldn't have gone into medicine. We're all intelligent people. There are quicker, easier, better ways to earn money than practicing medicine. If you wanted social standing or prestige, you wouldn't go into emergency medicine. Every day, our patients spit at us, they swear at us, they vomit on us. No social, no social standing in that, it's not prestigious. So there must be another reason, there must be a deeper reason behind what we do. And we all have our reasons. I can't speak for everyone in this room, but I can tell you my story and why I do medicine. So this is, um, these are two pictures of St. Thomas's Hospital. It's a, stop, it's a hospital in Stockport, a suburb of Manchester. It looks a little bit run down there, and that's because it, this picture was taken a few years ago when we were about to knock it down, it's gone now. But this is where I did voluntary work when I was at school. I worked on a stroke ward, and these patients were beyond all medical intervention. There was no such thing as rehab for these patients. These patients would be gone out of bed in the morning by nurses, they'd be put in a chair in the day room, they'd watch some TV, they'd be given some food, taken to the toilet, and put back in bed at the end of the day. And they'd repeat that until the patient's day, which didn't tend to be very long. It was essentially death's waiting rooms. My job was really to make cups of tea, wash up, and to speak to the patients. And there was one patient that I particularly remember. His name was Albert. And Albert had some physical disability, a little bit of short-term memory loss. But you could hold a conversation with Albert. One day I was sat in the armchair next to Albert and all of a sudden he put his hand on my hand, on the arm of the chair. He looked me in the eye and he said, listen sir, your life is going to pass you by before you know it. In the blinking of an eye, you'll be sat where I'm sat. And you'll be telling this to someone else. And at 16 years old, that was quite powerful. He said, make sure you do something worthwhile with your life, because pretty soon it'll be gone. And um, so that made me think, you know, I'm really focused on my mind. It made me think, I could do something worthwhile. And that's why I went into medicine. There's nothing more worthwhile than committing your time to prolonging the lives of people who are too young to die and optimizing the well-being of so that's why I did medicine largely, I thought it was a very worthwhile thing to do. And I chose emergency medicine because I like all of the things that I talked about in one of my first slides, the adrenaline, the unpredictability. And when I went into emergency medicine, I didn't want to do research. I wanted to be a clinician. I wanted to look after patients. Research is for academics. I wanted to be the one that put these new things into practice and made a difference to patients' lives. But as I went through the first couple of years of my career, I noticed something. I had questions. For almost every patient I saw, there were questions. 
I was asking him, why are we doing this? Couldn't we do this? And I did find a way of answering those questions in a satisfactory way. I mean, I could, I could look them up in a textbook, but how did I know whether the answers were reliable? I could ask my seniors, but if I asked two different seniors, I might get two different answers. And then I realized something else. The more I learned, the less things I could be sure of. This is another of my favorite quotes. Do you know who said it? It sounds quite profound, right? You probably think it's Confucius or someone like that. It's not, it's George Harrison from the Beatles in a song called It's All Too Much. Quite a profound quote, but then the headline of the album was We All Live in a Yellow Submarine, so it swings and roundabouts, I guess. So I set about answering some of these questions in a more robust way, and I started by doing best bets, best evidence topic summaries. These were developed by Kevin McWay Jones in Manchester, where I'm from, and they're designed to help busy practicing clinicians to answer the meaningful questions about the patients in front of them. So we ask focused questions, we do a systematic review of the literature, we appraise the evidence, and then we come to a pragmatic, evidence-based clinical bottom line to inform other busy practicing clinicians. And the first question I asked with the best bet was about oxygen use in patients with acute myocardial infarction. At the time, we had this mantra, this absolute dogma, that patients with acute MI should be given MONA, M-O-N-A, morphine, oxygen, nitrates, aspirin. The oxygen had to be high flow, 15 litres, there had to be a non-rebreathed bag, and these patients had normal oxygenation. I wanted to know why we were giving them oxygen. My seniors told me that it was because the patients had ischemic myocardium, it needs more oxygen, so we give them oxygen. But it didn't quite ring true, you know, there's an occlusion there. How much of it gets through, and could hyperoxia have a harmful effect? So I ran a better bet, and I found that there were two randomised controls of the trials of this in the 60s and 70s, which showed a tendency towards harm with oxygen. Not benefit, harm. So as, as a trainee, a busy practicing clinician, I changed practice. We stopped using oxygen for acute myocardial infarction. I moved on and I did a PhD because these questions kept coming. And you might think that a PhD is about complex research, but I did some very simple stuff at the start. I had these patients with chest pain who I refer to the inpatient teams. They'd ask me how many cardiac risk factors the patient has. I'd say, well, none. And they'd say, well, I'm not admitting the patient for troponins then because they can't possibly have an acute coronary syndrome. So I wanted to find out if they were right. I simply recruited 800 patients. I got their consent when they arrived, recorded their risk factors, and then found out their diagnosis. And we got an answer to the question. If you have no risk factors for ischemic heart disease, there's a 12% probability that you're having an acute myocardial infarction. That's roughly the same as patients who have three risk factors. 
So as quite obvious that they're wrong, we do need to take these patients seriously, even if they have no risk factors. Moving on, I met Saeed Laribi, a research fellow from France. I don't know if any of you were involved in the Eurodent study, but it spans Europe and it's included scores of centres. He's done this very simple study, the European Dyspnea in Emergency Medicine Study. We record routine data from patients who present to the emergency department with shortness of breath. And this will tell us about the variations in presentation, the variations in practice across Europe. It will tell us about the epidemiology of shortness of breath. And it will help us to focus our research questions. Really meaningful, high-impact stuff. And you know what the best thing is? All of the research that I've told you about in this presentation so far cost a total of zero pounds. Zero pounds in funding for all of that research and it's really meaningful stuff. Now, I know that you, this is Germany, you might not be confident in the conversion. This is GB pounds, so I converted it just in case. It is zero euros still at the moment. You don't need lots of funding to do really meaningful research. And I've shown you don't need lots of time because I, I did lots of this when I was full-time clinical. Of course, if you have lots of funding, it helps. I don't know if you know about the CRASH-2 trial. This was a multi-centre international randomised control trial which compared tranexamic acid to placebo for patients with major trauma who had suspected internal bleeding. They randomised over 20,000 patients from 200 centres in 40 countries and they found that tranexamic acid can save lives with a number needed to treat to prevent death of 65. That's incredible. That's the power of emergency medicine research. During the trial itself, even before we implemented it in clinical practice, tranexamic acid is likely to sustain over 150 lives. Amazing stuff. Now I said at the beginning there was a third myth, but you know, to, to do this, you have to have no life, no work-life balance. Well, these pictures were all taken over the last few years um, during my travels and my experience with research. And I've, research has been brilliant for me. I've done some superb things. I have a most awesome job. I split my work between clinical work and research. And it is the most fantastic balance. I've got to go to some fantastic places, Australia, New Zealand, America, across Europe. I've met some amazing people. I've uh, stayed in castles. Um, I've built some superb collaborations. It's an absolute myth that you can't have a life if you do research and clinical practice. It's the best job in the whole world. So here we go, those three myths. But to do research, you need lots of time. If you don't, you can do it on top of a full-time clinical job. You need lots of funding. You don't, you can do it with none. And you'll have no life. You can have a life. So I want to leave you with another quote. And as we're in Germany, what better person to quote than Albert Einstein? Try not to become a man of success. 
rather try to become a man of value. I think that through research, we can achieve that. I think that all of us should be striving to achieve that as individuals, and all of us should be striving to inspire the next generations of emergency physicians to achieve that as well. Thanks very much. Rick, that was inspiring. If you're interested in emergency medicine, if you want to make emergency medicine your career, but you're also interested in research and you also want to move the specialty on, that was a truly inspiring talk. And I think a lot of people listening to this who've been thinking about getting into research, either as a prime researcher or just getting involved and helping it happen, I think that'll be really... So I really hope so. I hope that it made you feel a bit more passionate about the evidence base behind our specialty. I hope that it gets at least one person involved in more research. What were the other highlights that you had when you were out in Germany? I think the highlight of the conference was the ability to connect and make new friends and contacts with emergency physicians in Germany. I felt really inspired by what they do. Their specialty is at such a young age. As you say, it's not formally recognised as a specialty, but people across Germany are already practising emergency medicine, even though it's not properly recognised. So we've got people who've trained as internal medicine physicians, surgeons, anaesthetics, and they are working in emergency departments seeing undifferentiated patients just as we do, but without the recognition for what they do. And they're facing a real battle trying to set up their specialty and convince people. In fact, just four weeks before I arrived at the conference, it's finally been recognised as a subspecialty, but only in Berlin. Wow. So they've got some work to do. But I met some of the German at uh, USEM. And again, our colleagues in Europe, they have different challenges. But at the end of the day, they're still emergency physicians, they're still critical care physicians, and they're still resuscitation. So they're, they're part of the big emergency medicine happy family. I really think we need to work on this. We, we have the slight barrier of language. Most of us don't speak German. Fortunately, the Germans speak excellent English. Well, that's not an excuse for not trying. I really think we need to work on building connections with our friends and colleagues in Europe. We've got so much in, com in common with them. And this was a terrific opportunity to try and build some of those connections. I hope that we get lots of opportunities to continue that in the future. Excellent. Well, I'm off to Denmark later this month um, to speak to the Danish Society. Um, that's going to be fantastic, so I'll have a, a little bit of a similar experience. And then uh, next year, we're hoping to get to Europe again. We're going to Italy in September? October. 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 10th to 14th in Torino. Absolutely fantastic. And I know there's some great conferences going on in Sweden, like the Sweets 15 conference, which I'm going to try and get to, but difficult to arrange time. So loads and loads of things going on in Europe. Hope to hear more, hope to see more, hope to be there more. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.